Today's scripture reading will be from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. This is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, eternal word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God will stand forever. Right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Yeah? Good morning. Um, let's see. As our sanctuary continues to fill up, uh, we're going to pivot a little bit as a ministry. I, I met with Pastor Xiong, who was our children's pastor currently, and uh, we are planning to open up a 9 a.m. children's ministry. So the, for the grade school level kids, uh, there will be something ready for all of you, uh, families with kids uh, at that level, uh, by, by the beginning of, I think we said May. Okay? <laughs> so, in the meantime, we're going to uh, actively re- recruit volunteers. We need um, enough teachers to pull it off. So if you're interested, please contact Pastor Xiong, and uh, he'll meet with you and train you. Okay? Wanted to make sure you, un- you knew that was coming. 
Uh, looks like today we're in part 32 in our series in the book of Acts, and with this message, I can now say that the book of Acts has been the longest series I've ever preached in my life, right? That may not mean much to you, but the fact that I'm able to stick with a book for this long without running out of things to say is truly owing to God's grace. So for me, it's like, wow, part 32, amazing. Thank you, Lord. That's my heartfelt response. The outline today will be in three parts. Uh, part one, by the way, there's some words in this passage that are pretty tricky to pronounce. And so I had to meet with Pastor Sam right before 9 o'clock service and coordinate. Um, so part one, the first word that's difficult is this. It says the hall of Tyrannus. That's how I'm going to say it, okay? Tyrannus. And by the way, it's good if you follow along the passage. You're going to keep the Bible open, especially today because it's, it's pretty... Uh, there's a lot, lot in here, and uh, you might get lost if you don't pay attention, okay? The Hall of Tyrannus, all right? In, in Korean, or rather in Greek, it's, it's actually read Tyrannu without the S. The Koreans pronounce it as Turanno, all right? It, I was actually surprised to, to, to learn that. It's Turanno. And um, part two, I'm going to title it as Holy Handkerchiefs. And the son of, and the second word that's difficult is this word, I'm going to pronounce it skeva, okay? The sons of skeva. In the Greek, it's skewa. Koreans pronounce it as skewa, right? Because they're smarter than most people. <laughs> and we're just going to say skeva, okay? Part two, the holy handkerchiefs and the sons of skeva. Um, I don't know if it's because of this text that Pastor Andrew chose to bring a handkerchief today. And put it right here, but uh, I don't know. Is it <laughs> first time I'm seeing it with a handkerchief? Part three, the great book burning. Okay, so uh, hopefully those titles will help you follow along better. Part one, the hall of Tyrannus. Okay, now before we talk about what this place was, let me first provide some important context for us. Okay, last Sunday, if you remember, I mentioned that Luke had pushed the fast forward button and basically breeze through Paul's second missionary journey, like toward the end of it, he's kind of breezed through all the, all the places he, he visited, and, and, and then even including the first part of Paul's third missionary journey, which is kind of, you know, whoosh, just fast forward through it all, right? And in the previous chapter, uh, we see that Luke... He panned away from Paul for a brief moment to focus on the husband and wife team of Priscilla, Aquila, and also the gifted Apollos, and that we covered them last Sunday. Uh, and at the time, Apollos was in this city of Ephesus, but we see now in this chapter that Apollos is no longer here. He's gone. He, he went to uh, the neighboring city of Corinth, okay? And Paul, in the meantime, he, he did this circle around, you know, the, I guess his typical path, and he made it back finally to Ephesus. And this is the city where Paul uh, will invest in a total of three years, right? For three years, and that, that's the longest he's been in any place. So uh, something that uh, you want, you definitely you don't want to overlook. Ephesus was heavily invested by Paul. Now, the first thing we're told as Paul enters into the city of Ephesus is that 
he found some disciples. And I want to just unpack what this means a little bit. Because um, I, I, I do not believe that these men were true Christian disciples when Paul first met them. And I, I say that for two reasons, okay? Number one reason is it says that they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And this sounds like they weren't exposed to much of any of Jesus' teachings and Jesus spoke clearly and rather frequently about the role that the Holy Spirit was to play in the believer's life. That's my first reason, okay? My second reason is this. If they were true disciples of Christ, Paul would not have felt the need to explain to them that John baptized them with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who would come after him, who was Jesus. Right? He, he wouldn't have had to say that if they were truly followers of Jesus, but they were not, and so he had to clarify that. And um, I think what happened here is it's more likely that these men consider themselves to be disciples of maybe John the Baptist, not, not Jesus. And their, their knowledge was very limited. And because they were in this spiritual limbo, uh, Paul points them to Jesus, and he then baptizes them in Jesus' name. And that's the point in which they become genuine disciples of Christ. And I, I, I want to clarify that because these men are actually important in this story, because they... They're the ones that form the core group of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. They were essentially, you can consider them as Paul's 12 disciples. Uh, and, and these men carefully observed Paul while he boldly testified of Christ in the synagogue for three months, right? Verse 8. That, that's a progression. And after Paul essentially gets booted out of the synagogue because people reject his message, uh, that's sort of a common refrain in, in the book of Acts, right? That's when uh, Paul takes these same disciples, roughly 12 men, and he reasons daily with them in the hall of Tyrannus. It wasn't just them, but again, they served as the core group, core member. Uh, they were the core members of Paul's group, right? So then what was this hall of Tyrannus, and, and uh, what can we learn from it? Well, you can think of it as an ancient lecture hall or auditorium that was owned by a, name, a man named Tyrannus. Right? That's essentially what it was. And because the Jews were not receptive to the gospel, right, Paul essentially had to find a place he could rent and use as his ministry base while in the city. Now, it's what you would expect of church planters in our day, right? They, they can't afford to purchase the building, so what do they do? They either rent space from a school or an office or another church so that they can do regular ministry. That's what we're seeing here. Now, there are some manuscripts with notes in the margins indicating that Paul rented this facility from the fifth hour of the day to the tenth hour. And uh, that would have been from 11 a.m. in the morning to 4 p.m. in the afternoon every day. And so Paul didn't just preach on the weekends, okay? He was a teacher he was a lecturer, he was an evangelist, he was an apologist, and so he did everything. He, he needed a place that he could use every day to engage with people. And I've read from several places that Paul may have been able to secure these particular hours because these were the hottest hours of the day where people generally did not use the lecture hall. So it was like a win for Paul right, who needed a place for ministry, 
but it was also a win for Tyrannus, who would have probably had an empty space, right? an em- empty hall if Paul didn't occupy it. A win-win for both. That's how God provided for Paul in Ephesus. But, you know, it's, it's the result of Paul's ministry mentioned in verse 10 that should give us some pause, right? Verse 10 says, this ministry of Paul continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let that sink in for a moment. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so I, as a pastor, who's interested in reaching all the residents of the DMV area, I I naturally ask this question, right? How did Paul manage to get all of the residents, not only of the city of Ephesus, but all of Asia, to hear the word of the Lord? How did he do that? Even if you take this as hyperbolic, it's still an amazing thing that the gospel, the word of the Lord was spread throughout all of Asia. And if, if you remember, the, the, you know, the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, the seven churches are scattered throughout all of Asia. So th- there was a, a rapid spreading of the message. And Paul could not have ministered to all those churches. These were, it was owing to God, the people that, that uh, Paul discipled that were sent out. Right, that, that's how it began. So I wanted to uh, just highlight two reasons why this, this was made possible. And, and the first reason is this. He, he devoted himself to the teaching of the Word of God, not just for a, a short season, but for a sustained period of time. That's one reason why this was made possible. So th- this is relevant to us brothers, sisters, because, you know, in everything we do, but especially when it comes to ministry, and I know many of you are, are ministry-minded despite COVID, right? I'll kind of reel you back in. I know many of you have given a fire in your heart, and you are, you have that ministry mindset, right? But, you know, when it comes to ministry, you want to keep at it, right? You want to stick with it for more than a year, it's got to be for a sustained period of time. Early on in, in ministry, for me, um, I heard this saying that was very helpful in shaping my, uh, I guess, my, my practice. And the saying goes like this, you know, people tend to overestimate what they can do in one year, and they tend to underestimate right, what can be done in three years. And that's one reason why I, I actually fully adopted this mindset it's one reason why I tend to work on executing three-year plans, right, not just one-year plans. I, I look ahead at least three years in advance, and that has generally worked well for me in getting things done over the years. And it also guards me from disappointment and setback. It allows me to actually expect that there would be obstacles the first year of anything you try to do. And so, brothers and sisters, when you think of the Hall of Tyrannus, I think it will help for you to think of it as a place of sustained ministry, okay? That's something we should all aspire to have in our lives in some form. What will that place of ministry be for you in this year? I strongly encourage you to set some concrete goals and try to stick with it, stick with them, 
okay, for at least three years and see what God does during that time. You may be surprised by the results. A second reason why the word of the Lord was able to spread and be heard by all the residents of Asia is that Paul, he did not act alone. He did not do this alone. Of course, there was the Holy Spirit at work. I mean, the sermon series is titled the book of, you know, or not the book of, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit after all. So, of course, there's the Holy Spirit in powerfully at work, but I'm trying to understand how God uses people, okay, to spread his word across a large population, especially in this period where there was no internet, no social media. How did Paul do it? And the answer is that he had his core 12 disciples. So it turns out that Paul did not reinvent the wheel. He, he went about doing ministry following Jesus' model of making disciples and having those disciples go out and make more disciples. And those disciples to go out and make more disciples. It was a multiplying of disciples. That is how the word of the Lord was made known to all the residents of Asia. And that's how those seven churches were planted and became prominent, scattered throughout all of Asia. I've heard it said several times in recent years, and I'm humbled by this. I've heard many people say, you know, everyone knows about our ministry. I say, what, everyone? <laughs> I know it's, again, hyperbole. Some people don't, but the point is that it seems as like everyone has heard about our ministry, and it's obviously not a bad thing to be known by others. But let's make sure that we're clear on this, okay? Our purpose is not to make ourselves known, but to make Christ and his word known, amen? And if that's our genuine desire, right, then guess what? We need to be a disciple-making church so that we can multiply our efforts to testify, not, not of the glory of KPCW or Cornerstone, but the glory of Christ. Right? We need to multiply our efforts to testify of God's word. And so as a member of Cornerstone, that is part of what's expected of you, okay? In case you've forgotten. Right? Make known the word of the Lord in the places you live, the places you work, and the places you play. Part two, holy handkerchiefs and the sons of Skeva. It's a remarkable passage. You know, uh, during this early period, when the apostles were actively building the foundation of the church, miracles were definitely more common. You know, partly because the prevalence of miracles were meant to be understood as a clear sign that the kingdom of God had come. And it was also through these miracles that the ministry of the apostles were being authenticated as being approved by God. That was one of the functions of miracles, right? Um, and I'm not, I don't want to debate on whether miracles happen now. I, I believe miracles can happen anytime, anywhere. Okay, but I'm, I'm talking about the intensity, the, the prevalence of miracles, and the purpose of miracles, why we see so much miracles happening right now, like in this period where the apostles were active. We call it the apostolic era, okay? There was a unique purpose as to why miracles were more prevalent than, than ever. Paul, Paul's ministry was no exception. God was doing some unbelievable things through Paul, 
right? Things that none of us have ever seen or experienced before. Look at verse 11. Luke records, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. See, even by, you know, Luke's estimation, Luke's estimation is like extraordinary miracles and unbelievable things. So even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, can you imagine the jaw-dropping things happening here? But here's something that we all need to be mindful of. What I want to focus is not so much on the miracles, but how people respond to such miracles, okay? Whenever there's a great display of power, notice what happens. Pretenders emerge, okay? And, and they try to get, you know, get a piece of the pie. They, they try to be part of the action. Right? Uh, as we see here in verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul... I don't take... I don't, it's kind of funny if you think about it, right? Say, I don't know this Jesus, but I'm going to rebuke you, spirit, by the Jesus that this other guy proclaims. And the people who did that, it's listed as the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Skeva were doing these things. I mean, how ridiculous and foolish. But we, we see these things happen all the time, even in our day. You know, when, when people think that Christianity offers them some kind of earthly benefit, right, and there's this advantage of being identified as a Christian, you know what happens, right? All sorts of people will show up even though they really have no relationship, even though they don't know who Jesus is, even though they don't have any kind of love for the Lord, they will show up if they think there's a benefit for doing so. On the other hand, when Christianity is demeaned and when there's a clear disadvantage of being a Christian, the people who join for superficial reasons will choose to no longer identify themselves as Christians. And in the end, as we see here, the pretenders will be exposed for what they are because none of us can hide our true identities for too long. We will eventually all be found out. Here's the most memorable line in this story, in my opinion, and it comes from an evil spirit. Verse 15, to these men who are trying to rebuke the spirits with a name they don't even know, really, says, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Okay, who are you? Brothers and sisters, if you're a pretender, demons would have no fear of you, and this is what they would say to you as well. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who in the world are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You have no protection, brothers and sisters, if Christ does not indwell you. 
This is the end of every person apart from Christ. You will be overpowered by such darkness. These men pretended to be something they were not, and eventually they were exposed for what they truly were. Let me share something that I'm really not comfortable sharing, but I will because I think it's an important point. Um, you know, over the past two years, many pastors and leaders were found out as well. They were exposed. Uh, you know, in case you haven't heard, most of the country has now declared that the pandemic is over. Praise the Lord. But it's too late for many church leaders because the past two years have already exposed their true colors. Like we know who they are. You know, I think it was sometime during 2021 where I remember uh, telling our pastoral staff that it doesn't really matter how many times a pastor says, I believe that corporate worship ought to be a priority for believers. If that pastor has made worship practically impossible for his members over a prolonged period of time, right? Will you trust that pastor? <laughs> if with his mouth says, I believe in the importance of corporate worship while preventing his people from actually worshiping week in and week out. Those pastors have been exposed. Let me give you another example. I know of a pastor who was disappointed that some of his members had left the church over the church's teaching on social justice and because they believed that the church had become too woke, right, is the popular word these days. And that pastor basically argued, look, don't you realize that we agree on the essentials of the faith? Like, we agree on the authority of Scripture, in other words, he was saying, look, we agree on the most important theological issues, so is it really necessary to divide on these so-called secondary issues? Was his claim. How would you respond to that? I had to really think about that, actually. Because that's an argument I hear a lot. And of course, I agree with that argument in principle. Of course, we, we shouldn't divide. I, said it, I, think, I believe I said it last week. We, should, we shouldn't divide on secondary issues, for sure. But I heard someone put it this way, um, and it makes good sense to me. So I wanted you to wrestle with this as well. Here's a, in my estimation, a very wise and sensible response. And I'll just read it. The authority of Scripture is measured not by an affirmation, you know, I believe in the authority of Scripture. No. Your commitment to the authority of Scripture is demonstrated by your submission to and your obedience to Scripture, right? Uh, you demonstrate your view of authority by your obedience, like your actual obedience. So consequently, if you rush to judgment on some shooting that is made public through social media and you make claims publicly that would disqualify you from serving on any jury and you're just constantly out there passing judgment, then you are demonstrating your lack of commitment 
to the authority of Scripture, right? You may say that you believe in the authority of Scripture, but you don't actually do what Scripture says. So what are you then? See, at best, I believe this is a huge blind spot for many pastors in our day. And at worst, it's evidence that these pastors really don't believe in the authority of Scripture. Their authority is in something else. And the way I see it is that God used the past two years to prune the church at every level. Our true commitments have been exposed to a large degree. So that's sobering. But we can be hopeful as well as we look to the future because every season of pruning, if you've done any gardening, every season of pruning is followed by a season of growth. And I believe that God is wanting to provide a season of growth for those of us who would desire it. I hope you would desire it. This takes us to the last part of the message. Part three, the great book burning. Verse 18, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, their wicked practices. They fessed up. What does this mean? I thought of it this way. I think this will help. See, if you're not a Christian, just think back. Like if you're a Christian now, just think back when you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, your conscience may tell you that murder or lying or stealing or committing adultery is wrong. But that's what the conscience does. That's why God placed a conscience in our lives. It's supposed to work that way, even for unbelievers, right? But if you're, if you're an unbeliever, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you don't know what to do with that, right? You, you just, you're, kind of, you're kind of burdened by the sense of guilt, and, and you don't know what to do with that. And, but the thing is, no one can live with such guilt forever. You know, and so people end up doing all sorts of things to suppress the truth of God's word, to alleviate themselves from such guilt. And so one thing that we've seen is they they constantly like move the goalposts of morality every so often. It's like, okay, oh man, I feel guilty. And so they they shift the goalposts over there so that they're not guilty anymore in their eyes. And they keep on doing that to avoid any sense of guilt or shame. Or another tactic is they make up some kind of you know, random social justice issue that they, they can personally handle during that season, and they become these self-righteous Pharisees that become the judge of everyone else. Right? Essentially, they, they create their own religion. They became their own standard bearers, being the most judgmental person in the world. But thankfully, when you become a Christian, The word of the Lord confirms what your conscience has been telling you all along. And your heart of guilt and shame are laid bare before him. But instead of trying to artificially suppress that guilt and shame, you bring them, you bring that guilt before the Lord, right? Before your Lord, before your Savior, and you ask him, to forgive you for the sins you've committed. And that's the way you resolve that burden. 
That's what it means when it says that these believers came confessing and divulging their practices. It means that they finally found the person who could relieve them of their burden. They found freedom in Christ. But that's not all. Look at what they do next. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them literally in the sight of all. It was a great book burning. So as, as pagan occultists heard of what was happening in Ephesus, like these amazing things that are happening, they wanted to hear, they wanted to listen to the message Paul is preaching. And not only did many of them give the, their lives to Christ, but they felt compelled to burn their books containing magic and occult practices as a way to express their allegiance and devotion to Christ. But the total value of the books they burned are meant to surprise you, okay? It says it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A conservative, a conservative estimate would place the value at $6 million in today's currency, right? That was the Lowest estimate I could find. A high estimate would be like $50 million. The point is that these new believers were willing to sacrifice their incredibly valuable possessions in order to fully dedicate themselves to Christ. That's what we're seeing here. So what do we make of this? <laughs> I would never say... I would never make a blanket statement, okay, let me put it that way. I would never make a blanket statement and say, church, in order for you to follow Christ, you need to burn all of your Harry Potter books right now. I would never say that, okay? Or I would never say, you would have to, if you want to follow Christ, you've got to cancel your Netflix membership. At least not in a blanket statement way, right? just depends, I guess, on the person. But what came to mind, what came to mind as I was thinking about these believers who burned their books, what came to mind, there are some college friends I know, right, way back, many, many years ago. These friends who had chosen to throw out their secular music records and CDs, which are probably valued, you know, in the thousands, I mean, and that's a lot of money for a college kid. And they did so, right, not because those things were evil in and of themselves, but because they knew the power that music had over them during that season of their lives. Because it wasn't just the music, right? It was the culture that accompanied the music. It was the emotional investment they made, immersing themselves into that world, and in that moment of their lives, right, for them to make a clear and decisive decision to follow Christ, right, that part of their past had to go. They had to burn it, and they had to leave it behind. That was their mindset. Do you remember when the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, sell, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And Jesus said that not because he's against wealth, but it's because he knew the power of wealth 
And if there's one thing that was holding back the rich young ruler from placing his trust in Christ was his wealth, right? For him, wealth was his source of comfort and strength. And I don't know what that is for you, but God may be prompting you this morning to give up that one thing that's been holding you back from fully trusting in him during this season of your lives. Okay, so I ask you, what has been your main source of comfort and strength over the past two years? Has it been the Lord? I hope so. Has it been the means of grace he offers to his people? I hope so. Or have you replaced him with a poor substitute? I was watching uh, the Korean actor Chong Hae-in respond to a question. You guys know who he is, right? I know you sisters know who he is. He's a one good-looking Korean actor. Kind of looks a, a bit uh, boyish, but I think that's a trend these days, right? Um, but the question posed to him was, what is one thing you value the most in life? What is that one thing you value the most in life? And there was a lighthearted interview, so I'll cut him some slack. And by the way, if you don't know who Chong In is, um, he is the lead male, oh, how should I put it? He, he is the lead actor, right, in the new K-drama series, series Snowdrop, okay? I confess I watched it. I also confess I enjoyed it. <laughs> So this question was posed to him, what is that one thing you value the most in life? And his answer was not Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't the word of the Lord, but it was, I guess rather predictably, it was kongang. Kongang means health. It was his own personal health. I'm, I'm sorry if you're a huge fan of uh, <laughs> Chong Yin. Now, I know that we can't expect actors and actresses to give us, you know, wise counsel, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some of our own answers were the same, right? I guess that, that's my pastoral concern this morning. What is that one thing in life you value the most, honestly? I hope your answer wouldn't be kongang if this were a serious interview question. It might be uh, slightly less selfish to say, well, it's the health of my children or the health of my aging parents. But you see, even those things cannot serve as a substitute for the Lord. Uh, this week, I was encouraged actually to hear that the now former Levi's Jeans president, I guess they make more than jeans, but the Levi's president, Jennifer Say, gave up $1 million of her severance pay because she wanted to speak freely about why she was being forced out of her job. Right? Do you know why she got fired? Did you hear that news? She got fired because she spoke out publicly against California's school closures, and the company wanted her to keep her mouth shut. And so they said, look, if you sign this non-disclosure agreement and not tell anyone why 
we're letting you go, then we'll give you your $1 million severance and all will be well. But if you refuse to sign this NDA, then you can forget about the $1 million. And so she, she chose not to sign it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know her faith. I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but I was like, that was the right thing to do, right? And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but as I read that story, this thought did come to mind. How many of us, how many of our own Cornerstone members would be able to turn down such a large sum of money for those reasons, right? Because, like, do you have that fire in you? Like, I, I refuse to be muzzled from speaking the truth. Do you have that? You have to have that fire. If you don't have that, you will easily bend and you will compromise every time. So, brothers and sisters, as I close the message, I, I want to simply ask you, you know, figuratively speaking, what are the books in your life that need to be burned so that you could follow Christ and love him and serve him well this year? What are those books? I hope that we could all be willing to suffer great loss for the sake of following Christ because we've already counted the cost, haven't we? If you're this far in your journey, you've already counted the cost of following him, haven't you? And haven't you deemed him worthy? So if he is worthy, let's not be a people who are so feeble-minded and so cowardly as we live life. Let's have this resolve to want to honor Christ in all we do and not allow the culture around us to muzzle us. My prayer, my hope is that the word of the Lord would be heard by everyone in this area. And I pray that God would use our church to fulfill that purpose. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as the world around us grows increasingly wicked, we're tempted to find solutions outside of your holy word. So we thank you for once again reminding us today that genuine change in people, genuine change in communities and in culture can only occur when people are given the opportunity to hear your word, and be transformed by it. So then may you give us the grace to be diligent, to know and love your word, and to be committed to living under its authority. Lord, just as the Apostle Paul was completely devoted to the work of making disciples from the hall of Tyrannus, may we too be completely devoted to the work of making disciples from our own places of gathering so that all of the residents of Northern Virginia could hear the word of the Lord. And Lord, we confess we are weak, and that is why we look to you who is strong and able. So as we rededicate ourselves to you this morning, may your spirit empower us to stay on mission and to do what is impossible for man. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.